You're listening to the Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy, and pop culture. Coming to you from Vormir, may Black Widow rest in peace. Well, the good part is you've got some hot stuff on Lori already. She's, uh, she's, uh, got some, got, got some documented material. Well, listen, Lori Sonnenberg's (laughs) episode is in the Vocal Fry all time top 10. In fact, I mean, I haven't checked. Uh I I haven't, I have, I don't remember if it's in the top 10 or the top five. Uh, so it's, uh, Wow! It, now let me tell you, though, an interesting thing has happened. Uh, vocal oh, yeah. fam, vo- vo- vocal fam, we are here with two amazing humans today. But a funny thing—I'll tell you about them in a second. But a funny thing has happened since Nat's cast has launched, uh, mm-hmm. whatever it was, a month ago or whatever. Um, was it even a month ago? Uh, it's at least a month ago. Whatever. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, because yeah, because it was before we went into the hospital, and we've been out of the hospital almost a month now. So I mean, it was it was it was a month anyway. Since that has launched, and this just shows you that most of our audience is singing teachers, and I say that with all the love that I have for singing teachers, mm-hmm. obviously. But um, our Sarah and my kooky breathing episode has become our second oh, most downloaded <laughs> episode of all time. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. By the way, I have to show off. Ah, Yvonne's got, got her mug. mug. Fantastic. Signed vocal fry mug. Well, Yay. I don't have a mug. I could show you my Diet Coke, but it's not really uh, <laughs> uh and just and just so vocal fans, so you don't get worried, I did just drink thirty ounces of water coming off of my run. I don't just drink Diet Coke. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, Vocal Fam, we are here with two amazing human beings today. I was so glad we got this set up. It's always hard when Sarah and I try to get any guest on, let alone two guests yes. at the same time, right, Sarah? Yes, because then we're coordinating four schedules. It's hard enough coordinating even just my own. <laughs> and apparently coordinating seven is just not possible. And <laughs> no one's surprised. Teaching, and, and no one's teaching on Saturday morning, right? Gosh, I hope not. Well... Sarah and I are not. <laughs> yeah. We actually, <laughs> oh, no. I'll be honest, we do have some um, independent teachers coming up on the podcast, and they could, neither of them could do Saturday. That's um, true. We had That's to true. make make certain that, that we did not put them on. They were like, Saturday is our worst day. And we were like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, vocal fam, Lori Sonnenberg is no... Uh, uh, stranger? Stranger. That was the word I was searching for to the podcast. Uh, Lori, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, the first time via, via the internet. Uh, and then we are also joined by longtime vocal fam member Yvonne Redman. Hello, Yvonne. Yay! Hello. I just have to keep bragging. I'm very proud of this. <laughs> really proud of this mug. I'm sorry the vocal fam can't see the gorgeous mug that I, well, that I was honored to receive. It's one of my well, greatest to- honors. Sorry, Lori, say that again. I was like, I, had, I need to order one. I'm going to order mine today. 
That's awesome. That's Which awesome. everybody can order their own Vocal Fry mug at our Vocal Fry merch website. Yeah. <laughs> no shameless plugging here. Yeah, and Sarah and I need to check on that, too, because apparently PayPal is changing things on us. Anyway. Well, I may be mistaken, but I swear this keeps tea warmer than any other mug I've ever <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Uh, we neither can confirm or deny the claim that was just made about the product. Vocal Fry <laughs> has no uh, stake in the actual construction or role in the actual construction of our mugs. So um, unless you well, do, Sarah, and you're not telling people. me. Mm, you know, I'm prone to those kinds of secrets. Just, it's just another of my jobs. I'm just stacking them on. <laughs> JK, that's not true. I, I don't actually do anything with these mugs. Anyway, so Yvonne, tell us just a, a, a little bit about you since the Vocal Fam doesn't know who you are yet. Well, um, I'm at the University of Illinois. I've been here about 11 years. And um, I originally, uh, I'm from Texas. Um, and I went to a little bitty school that nobody ever heard of, but hopefully they will know about in the future. Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. And um, I had some really, really great teaching there. And um, after I completed my undergraduate there, I had a wonderful coach, um, Jan McDaniel, who's now at Oklahoma City University. And he really encouraged me to do auditions, and I did. And um, so that uh, gap year after school, I did some auditions, and I was a winner of the um, Houston Grand Opera McCullum competition and you know, then the small competition. <laughs> wow. And the oh Metropolitan Opera National Council audition. You know, whatever. <laughs> so that was a big change for me and my life has never been the same since. And so as I say I went from knack of nowhere to New York City and um, it was a huge it was fantastic and frightening. And uh, actually, uh, is um, one of the stories I tell, I do a presentation on performance anxiety. And uh, as you can imagine, it kind of grew debilitating around that time. No great surprise. Um, but anyway, uh, obviously, I got through it. Um, and I was a performer for a long time in New York City. And then 11 years ago, um, I... It took me a while to meet my wonderful husband, and when I did, I was like, you know, I kind of want to stay home more often. <laughs> um, and anyway, uh, we both applied to the University of Illinois. Um, I don't have a traditional graduate education because of the experience I had right after Indeed. my undergrad, and so I have spent really all my time focusing on improving my teaching and understanding the voice and uh, in a way have built my own education, which is kind of nice. And I try to remind students that they can make these choices too. It's There's lots of options in the world. So, well, um, yeah, if, so if that's I what just, I do if now. If I could just comment on that, um, you know, I, I've always been very impressed with Yvonne. And actually, Lori, we sort of talked about this when you were on Vocal Fry with you. I've always been impressed, Yvonne, with your um, desire to be sort of a lifelong learner. And just, you know, the way you model that, I think, is really quite wonderful for your students. Um, that's that's really, and, and just as a colleague, it's something to really be admired. I mean, that's that's great. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, well, as you know, I've met some pretty fantastic people 
um, attending a lot of these pedagogy programs that I've attended and uh, being online, incredible conversations and friendships that were built virtually. Incredible, really. Uh, I know I know you guys feel exactly the same way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy. The people that I feel like it's weird for me getting to meet people doing this that I wouldn't normally meet. And it's like, do I call this knowing them? Can I say like, oh, I met so-and-so when it was like on Skype? Does that count? <laughs> exactly. But I, you I, do. People say, oh, do you know so-and-so? And I'm like, well, virtually. In a sense. <laughs> I've never actually physically met them. Act, but, yeah, this is I, not yeah. true for this entire group. All four well, of us have true. met We've in all person. Met each other. But there was a time when I felt like I knew people and hadn't met them in person. Because, like, Ivonic would comment on stuff, and I was like, oh, I feel like I kind of know her. And then I met her in person. So. I know. I, met, I I was like, meeting you in person was like a superstar. <laughs> I was so excited when I saw you and Leah. I'm like, here they are in the <laughs> flesh. So at some point, I'm going to have to meet Michael. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that day. Uh, yeah, we'll see if we can get maybe Michael. Well, we'll see. I feel like. Go ahead, Lori. I was just going to say, I, I do all of you feel like, though, I mean, I mean, the I did on uh, one of our Facebook groups this last week about this, these connections and all the relationships that have happened and, and the, the, the lifelong learning and, and becoming interested in things that you wouldn't normally, w- wouldn't normally be on your radar. Yeah. Uh, about you, I, I feel like my to-do list has grown exponentially since these uh, virtual relationships. Oh, yeah. In a good way. Yeah, I mean... You know, I sometimes though, I mean, I think that's it's interesting. The sort of idea of just the the to do list growing, I think, um, has a little bit of a double edged sword because it's it's both wonderful and then you also feel overwhelmed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no question. Um, wait, I do have one question, Yvonne. Um, when when when? So you you got to Illinois Urbana Champaign eleven years ago. You said. So eleven. I'm trying to do the math. Okay. So well, was... I'm fifty. So well, no, 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 we no, 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 no. It had there. nothing to do with your age. <laughs> it had nothing to do with your age. Actually, I was trying to. I was trying to put it in context of my first summer out to work with Jerry. Oh. Um, which would have been just after that. It would have been 2011. Would have been my first summer out to work with Jerry. Uh, I was there. Uh, well, I might have been. Was I at Ingo's program that summer? <laughs> well, you know, every summer I just, my gorgeous husband just lets me flit off to these places and I, I could have been gone. I, that might have been, there were, I can't remember. I, I did Richard Lissamore's program, the Singing Voice Science Workshop, and then I did Ingo Tietze's program. Um, and then. Uh, well, Richard's only, we were only, last year with Singing Voice Science was only our fifth year. Um, oh, okay. So that was then, only the yeah. fifth year that had happened. So this, so Maybe it wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have been that. Um, yeah. But anyway, I just, it's so funny that I had been out to Urbana so often and that we had <laughs> never, never met, met in her. person. 
I know. And I just want to say, Nick is talking about my delightful, delightful colleague, Jerry Sienna. Wonderful. He was a wonderful tenor, and he's um, been teaching at the University of Illinois for some time now and Mm. is just a delightful human being. He's a delightful human being. That That is totally. And saved. And... Even though every time I say that he did so much for me and saved my voice and did so many things, he's sort of like, no, you did the work. Every single time, his humility is always one of the most amazing things about him. Um, so anyway, anyway, so I have a question for both of you. How in the world did you two come together to meet to do a, pr- uh, a presentation at Nats National? What in the world happened? Well... <laughs> If I may, uh, I I have had Lori's name in my desk drawer for about ten years. So um, when you're famous, I, I, Lori, you're famous. So you know when wow. people pass you a name and they say you need to meet this person and you need to know them, they're in your area. I hold on to it. And um, so when I started. Um, at University of Illinois, I had a couple students. I hadn't, I hadn't really recruited to the studio, and I had some new students that kind of came from all over. And um, one of them sort of was having vocal trouble. And um, I said, well, you know, at that time, we were really lucky um, to have Aaron Johnson on our right. faculty at the Speech and Hearing Science Department. And um, I... I just have to, I, I'm a name dropper, but only because these people are incredible people. They could not be better teachers, better mentors, wonderful friends. And so I, I'm dropping names because everybody should know these people. Well, and if great. I could just interject on Aaron Johnson's point, um, Aaron Johnson was the doctoral chairperson of our dear friend Josh Glasner's doctoral committee at NYU for the last number of years. So anyway, moving, moving, and and since we'll have a Picard PhD segment at the end of this episode, um, I just, I just uh, wanted to give a shot. Anyway, so moving on. Yes, moving on. Yeah, so Aaron said, well, there's some, you know, he was the first person I reached out to, and we didn't know each other that well, and he said there are some doctors up in uh, Chicago, and um, so I sent this young person up to Chicago, and they ended up getting help from Lori. Um, I she, never knew that. She I, was I recommended, and so the student came back to me and said, wow, you need to know this person. She's amazing. <laughs> so I've held on to Lori's name all that time. And so uh, Lori did a presentation at Central Regional Nats two years ago. And I said, I've got to go meet her. I've got to introduce myself and say hello. And she did a fantastic presentation on vocal health um, and taking care of yourself. And uh, I sent all my students to it. And they all sat in the front row, and I was so proud of them. But anyway, Lori was fantastic. And um, and so she and I saw each other at Voice Foundation when I saw you two at Voice Foundation. And, you know, uh, Alan uh, Henderson got to get everyone together and said, listen, we need some more presentations, get some people together. We want group presentations. And I just always thought Lori was fantastic and fascinating. I said, you know, Lori... Um, I want to talk about 
work the workplace of voice teachers and and safety in the workplace and I've got a little bit of information we did a small pilot study that I just submitted fingers crossed (laughs) it's been like all year it's just been my labor of love so I'm so happy to have that submitted but anyway um and I I said would you would you like to get together on it on on part of this and talk about the voice element in of teachers and singers in and the studio and the work they do there and she said sure of course she said sure because that's Uh and uh, so that's what happened fantastic so Lori, what what was your what was your response to that at that at, at the lunch of voice foundation well was that before your presentation or after because i can't remember the timeline I think it was ooh, it would I have had to have been before because that lunch was on Friday. Okay. So so yeah, so after we had a conversation well, first of all, I was just like, Wow, I'm very honored here that that she wants to include me in this. And so immediately the wheels start turning vocal fatigue and how that might play into what she was talking about and researching. And so I made uh, of course, anyway, but I made a very good point to, to make sure I was there to hear her present during the Voice Foundation so that I could learn a little more about what she what she'd been up to. And uh, and then the wheels just start turning, you know, and, and then we submitted uh, uh, the proposal and it got accepted. And so here we are and we're starting to kind of put it all together now. Well, and I just want to say, Nick, because you always say, you know, every, uh, you know, Alan Henderson says this uh, about Nats, you know, these conferences is a time for you to get together, meet people, col- maybe collaborate together. And that's exactly what happened at Voice Foundation um, is, well, I made a better connection with you two who I, as you know, I complete, well, you don't know. See, <laughs> I, I have all this adoration. You never see it. I just, it's in the, you know, presence of my own home that I listen <laughs> to you and I feel like... <laughs> We're so connected, but actually, you don't really know me very well. <laughs> well, okay, so, so I just have I have a couple of thoughts about that. One, I, I think that Alan does a great job in general of bringing people together. It's one of his sort of best qualities as our executive director of Nats. But also, one of the sort of missions of Vocal Fry has been to bring people together. And I think that, um, you know, and Sarah, I think you would agree with this, but, but uh, you know, we've talked about it before that I think podcasting is really a very intimate form of media. Not intimate yes. in a weird way, intimate just in that it, it's a conversation that happens literally in your, most people listen on earbuds or earpods. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a conversation in your head that is sort of designed to invite you into the conversation. Um, but, but anyway, you know, that the funny thing, the funniest thing sort of as just a matter of coincidence about that lunch that we all had last spring was that before that lunch happened was Alan and I sort of sitting down and having our first more formal conversation about Natscast. That's fantastic. Um, wow. so, uh, so there were, there were a lot of things happening in those couple of days at Voice Foundation, and this is all the more reason why Nats in Knox is going to be wonderful, fantastic, phenomenal, and exhausting. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> Still trying to mentally prepare myself for that. Not sure I am. Don't really know what to expect. <laughs> well, and it, what I wanted to say is uh, I'm, I'm going to try and steal your idea, Sarah. You, you've, oh? you've said that you might provide muffins or something like that at yeah. your early morning because <laughs> Lori and yes. I have that wonderful Monday morning, 7.30 a.m. It's so talk. early. Okay, so that was the next question. So you all are on Monday. Yes, we'll be Monday at 7.45, morning oh, coffee and it. conversation. And uh, I, I might do like Sarah and get yeah. some goodies to entice people to join us for Early. breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> it is. People are going to be hungry and sleepy. Going to have need oh, coffee. Oh, my. Especially by Monday after all yes. the activities going on. Oh, by my goodness. By Monday. If you actually go back and listen to... Um, our when I recorded in Vegas, uh, my my I I sort of had everybody done by that I did I think I, I think I had had done everybody through Sunday and then Michelle and I Michelle Marquardt Devoe and I sat down on like Monday afternoon right before I flew out and we were both it's funny because it was a really great conversation and really fun and we were both so exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> um so a, a, anyway all right so tell us a little bit about what you guys what what what, what what's going on what, what what are we presenting on i have no idea well um I'll, I'll go ahead and start and then i'll let Lori uh continue but basically the the title is the office voice instructors work environment and the effects upon voice and hearing and um and Lori and i are going to focus on how acoustic space and noise can affect our voices and hearing health in the workplace and um, the importance of regularly monitoring and testing that status. And um, so we were, we, Lori and I had talked about how we'll discuss resetting these important abilities, noticing when they've been fatigued, what symptoms there are of that and how we should pay attention. And then I think, both she and I, and, and I, I'd like Lori to expand upon this, but removing um, any stigma due to diminishment of these abilities. So that to us is super important. Um, and I think that's going to end up being more primary than we originally considered. But Lori, do you want to add some more to that? Well, and, you know, and thinking, not just thinking about the stigma, but as you were just talking about, uh, so these, you know, I focus so much with my patients who are in the trenches teaching because I, I, so of the people that I work with every day are in some teaching environment of some kind, whether it's a small space or a larger space. Um, most of the time there's uh, a lot of ambient noise, but we, we think about those warning signals. So I'm always driving through to people like, well, it's not enough to know. You have to know. You have to be able to assess. And uh, but I think that that's one of the issues is that people, all these things are happening, and people don't aren't aware of it. Their their hearing's being affected. Their voice is being affected, and they literally have no awareness that it's going until they're out of the space later. And uh, and 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 then of course, like kind of saying being willing to talk about to to go to a professional or go to a colleague or seek help and information on on what's actually happening instead of ignoring it 
that's that's really where people get in trouble. I know that's a talk. I mean, you guys do too. We're we're all teachers here. I mean, I say over and over and over again, this these are symptoms and you're you really need to pay attention to them. This is not a power through kind of mm-hmm. symptom. These are things that really will affect you the next day and the day after if you ignore them. And um, someone asked me the other day, you know, what's the most important advice I can give to my young singers? And and I said, first teach them symptoms of fatigue, those very gentle symptoms at first mm-hmm. that we think, oh, it'll go away. But but actually, we should just pay attention to it and, and be alert well, to it. And, you know, but the thing with vocal that I've learned and having just, you know, having these conversations on a daily basis with singers that are, you know, the very first time there, that's their time to get to tell me their story and describe what they're experiencing and vocal fatigue, everyone complains. It's probably one of the top complaints of, of a voice struggle of any kind, but it means thousand different things vocal fatigue means something different to everyone and i i mean well and i have fatigue and i'll say well okay well let's talk about that what what does that mean like you need Mm -hmm. to be a little more descriptive here there are different types of vocal fatigue and um and so getting to the root of for yourself getting to the root of like well what does that actually mean in in the moment uh, am I is am I really tired? Is that is that really a fatigue thing, or is it um, am I swollen? Am I? There are just a lot of different ways to think about that, uh, and so learning how to, to to assess that for yourself, um, and then what type of fatigue it is affects what you do about it. Yeah, and I just like to add too, there are symptoms of hearing fatigue as well at uh, that many yeah. of us just kind of. Oh well, you know that's what what's happened today, or or they we ignore it and we just move on. And as teachers, uh, musicians, uh, performers, we really need to pay attention again to what seems like not very much, but it's a symptom that we mm-hmm. need to pay attention to. And uh, we, I, I would like to see more awareness of hearing importance and symptoms, symptoms of these, I've been overexposed and I need to pay attention. Um, and, and also get, get the word out there, please, you know, let's get our hearing tested. Let's find out what our hearing levels are and continue to monitor that over the years to make sure that we're paying attention and taking care of ourselves because we all care about that. Um, you know, in addition, I I, I want to say that, you know, of course, <laughs> we are in a noisy environment as instructors, yeah. and so we will have some diminishment of hearing, but that doesn't mean, of course, you can't do your job. It just, it's just um, a way to monitor over time if it's getting worse or if it has stabilized. So I, I've never created a noisy environment in my own teaching ever, right, Sarah? Oh my gosh. No. Never. And I am sure totally unheard of. I am sure when you've sung when you sang those list songs <laughs> that you're Oh quiet. Accompanist just did was just uh it wasn't exposed to much at all. Or when I or when I demonstrate in class, right, Sarah? 
Oh gosh! The so one of the classrooms, specifically the classroom we used to have voice ped in. It, it is the room that I uh, primarily teach out of class wise. It's such a noisy room that there were days that just nothing even that he did, but like I would walk out of there with a headache, and I'd have to go back to the room and just like lay there in silence. I was just like, oh gosh, that was so loud for so long. Again, it's just, it's just. And you know what's interesting? You know what's interesting about that? And I'm so glad, you know, you guys are sort of talking about this this as a thing with hearing health particularly because, you know, years ago I just sort of thought, oh well, we're opera singers, we sing loud and you just need to know what this amplitude is like and blah 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 blah. blah. And now I'm kind of like, oh, well, yeah, but I kind of need to be careful because now I'm thinking about the fact that well, I'm getting older. And I'm going to start to lose my own hearing at some point. And now, particularly in light of the fact that I understand implications of higher frequencies, I'm going, right. I, I did a whole thing this week in acoustics on, I, we were, I, I forget even exactly what our topic was at the moment. Oh, I think we were just, because this was sort of the intro to acoustics week. We did, we did our perception unit and this was intro to acoustics week. And we were just talking about the harmonic series and I was explaining to them like, now imagine if you have a treble voice and they're having higher interactions going on that are affecting timbre or they're a belter and you don't have hearing above 10,000 Hertz. And they, they're, they're yeah. like, <gasps> and I was like, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Actually, you know, Lori, I have a question for you with that from a clinical perspective, you know, with these, you know, if you have singers coming in complaining maybe about fatigue, maybe from pushing, do you ever consider checking their hearing to see if maybe they it's from their own hearing loss? Um, it, it depends. It depends on the story. Um, not it's not a it's not a typical thing. It depends on uh, you know how what they're talking about, how they're responding in the clinic you know, how they're responding to, uh, to therapy and the way that they create their sounds. There are, are times, um, especially when resonance is really off, uh, when they're really struggling to, uh, to figure out when they struggle adjusting resonance patterns and experimenting with that. Sometimes that makes me suspicious. Of course, intonation makes you suspicious. Um, and then the age of the patient, absolutely uh will influence that uh, you know but people are um, honestly well number one they're not there for hearing advice they're right. there for voice advice mm-hmm. so i have to a little i'm careful in how i roll that out and and mention those things because people are very sensitive about it it's very interesting to me how uh people don't feel well, number one Across the board, people seem like they aren't remotely in- interested in hearing. No one wants to go do that. Mm. <laughs> I, yep, I mean, it's true. Because it's it's really scary to think about. It's really scary to right. think about that. And, and people would rather face other types of things that address that. Uh, but then also, um, they... They they don't know how, how to advocate for themselves in their professional environment. So, yeah. you know that that's important to. I think we can't forget that. 
people just they feel like they're asking for too much when they ask for concessions or uh, changing in the in the acoustic environment and asking their school to buy them a, a, a microphone to use while they're teaching. Uh, I have to I have to write letters all the time advocating for people in their their school and work environments. Mm. Well, and I just want to say too, one of the uh, you know, promoting someone who I don't really know, uh, actually, but would like to know better. But, you know, one of the, the the big studies that stood out to me was the one done by Isaac, Deanna McBroom, and Lucinda Halstead, who will also be presenting at Nats, one of the uh, uh, first sessions, I think. I'm sorry, what is Nats the calling pre-conference those? Pre-conference workshops. The pre-conference workshop and, um, you know, Deanna McBroom and Lucinda Halstead uh, do a lot of presentations, but they did a study, I'm trying to, let's see, in 2017 that I thought, whoa, we need to pay attention to this. And they basically went to a NATS, a, a regional NATS conference and they did some hearing tests and it turns out that there was a lot of... Um, diminishing of hearing upper really higher frequency hearing loss nick so i you know i want to emphasize that i i, I don't want to say you know that our voice teachers are deaf half of them no of course not <laughs> not, not at all what we're saying at all uh, no. the point is is that nobody's aware that there has been some indication of noise-induced hearing loss from our environments and they're not keeping track over the years of whether it's their environment is contributing to perhaps more hearing loss than is um, than is considered maybe normal if you were not in that kind of environment. So I just want to plug what they've done because I, I found that study to be a huge inspiration to me when I decided I wanted to monitor our teaching environments um, at our university. Absolutely. Um, we were up against. So uh, I just, you know, I think they did some great work there and they continue to do great work. So good for them. Well, and like if it's the classrooms, oh, that seems like such an unnecessary hearing loss, like such an unnecessary cause of hearing loss if we could mitigate it at all That's and right. bring awareness to that. Yeah. You know, one of my colleagues, one of my, who's also a dear friend, uh, Pasquale Botalico, is his research is in classroom acoustics and making sure under, you know, what are, for, for example, you were talking about backroom noise. Well, he did a study on finding like, what is that level that the Lombard effect kicks in, um, that we start speaking louder and the yeah. sounds are really um, causing us to elevate our voice. And it turns out that it's around 43.3 decibels, you know, um, mm-hmm. So I'm lucky that he works here at our university. And so um, I, I mentioned him because he's a phenomenal researcher and a wonderful mentor and friend. And, um, and his work is super interesting and pertinent to what we do. Sorry, Laura. You well, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was thinking about uh, that moment when we start shifting and doing things a little differently. And what those changes are like and it and so then it it, it necessitates using a different type of uh, a different type 
uh, gauge internally uh, where you try not to use your hearing because in the moment, in that environment, you, you can't. That. You can't, no longer can you rely on your inner or your outer hearing. You really have to start focusing on sensations and, mm -hmm. and knowing how, how to gauge vocally. Uh, and, and that's, uh, my mentor calls it diagnosis via introspection and really, uh, really able to determine, well, have I changed? Am I still using the resonance pattern that I want to use? Where is my pitch? Can I feel, feel that? level is different? Can I feel that my volume level is different? Uh, yeah. And so that internal gauge yeah. is really important in that environment. You depend on what you're hearing out here. Absolutely, Lori. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, we at the University of Illinois have some pretty amazing vocal spaces to perform in. We have a huge performing arts center with lots of theaters in it. And then, of course, in our music building, we have some recital halls. And uh, so we just did... Uh, Pasquale and I just did a, a study the other day, a perception study, where we took mm -hmm. eight singers and we had them sing in five spaces on our campus. And one of them was our outdoor amphitheater. We have a little outdoor amphitheater. Mm -hmm. And so we we came up with a questionnaire and we just wanted to understand what their perceptions were of singing in those environments. And that plays exactly into what you were just saying, because it was the first time, I mean... Our students get to perform in all these spaces, but not consecutively, one after the other, like we did. Oh, okay. And even they were amazed at how they had to self-monitor their voice and their dynamics um, and, and how different they felt and what their perception was in those places. So I'll be real interested to see what comes out of that. We're kind of working on it right now. But it, again, it's it, it plays into what you were saying about that self-monitoring the voice that sometimes you actually just have to trust that what you've been doing works because you're hearing something different. Mm -hmm. So on that point, I have a little bit of another perspective that I presented to class this week too. Um, and I, I can't remember if I've ever talked about this in the podcast or not. Um, but that is that as a voice teacher, you know, obviously we all recognize as voice teachers, if we're training someone to sing unamplified music, there is a certain decibel level that they're going to have to be able to accomplish particularly if if their voice is presenting that you know they will maybe one day sing Puccini or Mahler or Strauss or or you know whatever as we obviously know having sung in larger venues but um I think there's there can be almost the reverse um effect as a voice teacher that you may have a subconscious thing that goes on in your brain of, man, this voice hurts for me to listen to in this space. And you might need to rotate your students in lessons sometimes, trying to take them into the recital hall, trying to take them into the concert hall, yeah. trying to take them in, particularly if you're dealing with unamplified voices of some magnitude. Because I can remember a year, I, I've always been sort of aware of that because it's one of the things that my teacher had, one of my teachers had talked to me about. He's like, make sure you hear your classical singers in different venues. And so I'm always sort of thinking with the ears of what is this going to sound like in the opera house 
uh, or in the recital hall or whatever. And then, like, I know if we're singing in the recital hall and we're just singing a Ronaldo Hahn song, you don't need to make all that much noise. But mm. if we're singing a Puccini aria, there's a certain level of noise we have to make. Um, but, uh, you know, it, anyway, uh, just, just thinking of that and, 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 and being, I had another point, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, that was my point. <laughs> well, yeah, so, Nick, I mean, you're ready to join our presentation at Nat. Yeah. So if you want to do another early morning, <laughs> yeah, let's get up again. I'll let you, you take come me. on in and talk about that. <laughs> I'll bring coffee. I'll be all over you. I'll just be sitting there with my cups and I'll, maybe I'll share. We'll see. But it's funny you mention um, with classical singers, I actually have a little baby belter. We'll call her that because she's, she's young. She's a young singer. And we're working on how she doesn't have to be as loud, but like she has a huge voice and she'll be standing behind me belting. And I'm like, my ears hurt. And so I'll make her just move. I was like, I was like, sweetie, I'm sorry. I need you to go stand a few steps further away from me because you're killing me. I mean, she just has this huge, but it's commercial singing. It's not even classical. And just when she's belting, like especially belting up a little bit higher, it just it it can it can hurt as well. So it don't you don't have to watch out for it just with classical singers. I would say so. There's something. So what we what I call that is set point for volume. And so for singing and for speech, every individual, their own built in set point for for their average volume level. And we all know we, we all bring something different to the table with that. We all speak at a different volume. We all sing at a different volume. And so you have to help each person. A, a lot of times I have to do that with patients is, well, Okay, how do you rate your set point? Yeah, on a scale on a scale of here to here, and they'll and and so we give them scale, and if they say, oh, they'll they'll be so loud, but they'll say, well, I'm like a four. Yes, I think so that's it's hard. hard. And you're like, um, okay, <laughs> well, let and that and that lets me know right away that, that boy got to include that in this treatment plan. We've got to work on that that set point. And, and I'm, and I've never really, I apply that more to speech than singing, but it's kind of what you're talking about, Sarah, that this yeah. young person maybe doesn't, uh, they don't, they're not real accurate I would, in their set point. I would say that. Cause she's, she's someone who's just naturally loud as I'm like, I think she does have a big voice, but she's just naturally kind of loud all the time. And so she does, it probably, she doesn't feel like she's doing it as loud as she is because she's always her her kind of medium is that where I'm like we could we could find a new normal though and it might yeah. be better long term. Oh, I have well, a I have a fair. oh sorry, Lori. Well, I was just gonna that's where uh, biofeedback can be really helpful in those situations, uh, and there are, are numbers, but that's something you might want to think about with that young person. Yeah. I think well, so. you know, it's interesting too, Lori. That's so true. I love that word set point because um, I have some really big voices and I have some that I'm are sure. not as large as that. <laughs> but the really big voices, I mean, they're, you know, their mezzo piano is, you know, my other voice's forte. <laughs> and so I one day we said, you know, let's just do a little experiment here. Um, you know, normally these DB levels, so when you see DB levels, you know, oh, a voice can be as loud as 
you know, 120 dBs, or it can be as soft as this. And you think, okay, well, what distance did they measure it? Well, usually it's 10 feet. And so I said, why don't you stand 10 feet away, and I'm going to have my my sound level meter on, and uh, you just sing um, the end of You'll Never Walk Alone. So she's singing it. She's a very full voice. Uh, and she started at her mezzo forte, mezzo piano, and she was already at 90 dBs. And so by the time she got to the big, never walk alone, I was like, whoa. And you know, <laughs> the thing is, and this is something I'm going to point out, our students, when we teach them, I bet you are definitely closer than 10 feet. Oh, definitely. We do not consider how close they are and the directness of that sound right into our ears. Mm -hmm. And we need to do that. We need to pay attention to that. So good for you, Sarah. So like, back up, back up, back up. Yeah. (laughs) Face or, you know, and even redirect her to face a different Yes. Uh, or something well and i told her i she's one of my ones i'm like look you've got to you've got to print out two copies of music i can't have you reading it over my shoulder <laughs> instead yeah. of bringing just the one i was like that's not i can't i can't do it <laughs> well yeah. you know I'll, I'll share a quick anecdote about that um I, I obviously can't give away you know anonymity or anything but back when i was doing my dissertation research uh and we were taking samples of of professional tenors um there was one particular voice. Uh, I think we only had one voice that truly self-identified as a as a lyrico spinto, and um, I remember that the person, the 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 tenor's um, spouse, was also with me on the data collection. I mean, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, they were all both singers, and and I remember that every time. And one of those exercises for the dissertation was them just having to rip a B flat. Just uh, that was it. And uh, uh, on a couple of different vowels. And I remember as we took those samples, like I would start Voce Vista and then I would walk back. (laughs) 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 And then and then I would walk back and stop it because and that was and and fortunately, that particular data collection I, I was able to do. I didn't do the same controlled acoustic for that study, and I was able to do that one in a fairly large rehearsal room. Um, so at least I wasn't in some of the small studios that I recorded some samples in in New York when I was in a, you know, four by two cube. <laughs> well, and as I tell people, you know, even I'm like, um, if if you haven't. Just so you know, you you know, you go to the Metropolitan Opera, you think, oh, yeah, everything's big and it's going to (laughs) be at the rooms that they first have you rehearsing one on one are. I mean, I have a closet that's bigger and they've squeezed a piano in there and a chair and you're really right on top. I I mean, I feel for these accompanist coaches who are in those rooms with these enormous voices in a teeny tiny little room. I mean, literally imagine rehearsing someone for Dutchman in that space. I mean, what? Right. I mean, (laughs) oh, yeah. You There's would, a lot of Wagner going on there. You would be deaf. Uh. I mean, but but you know, I, I it also, and I think I have said this in the podcast before. This all reminds me. I remember a year in my teaching, at the end of an academic year, and it was a very rigorous year. I had a bunch of big boy tenors in the studio, and and I, I and I also had like twenty two students that year, something like that. Wow. I got to, I got to April 
And I remember going to my director of the school of music and I said, man, my, my ears are, are tired. They're yep. like exhausted. Sure. And, and like, I remember teaching the last couple of weeks of the semester and I was like, I'm, I'm, so I think there's also the issue of exposure over time. Absolutely. You know, without a doubt, no question. Absolutely. And, and that's what really got me curious about all of this, Nick, is I was, you know, I would be teaching and I'd notice after a couple hours, I just feel my right ear in particular whinge. It would just keep and I, you know, sort of rub it out. And I think, gosh, do you think those kids singing right into my ear is is doing something? And it, it uh, is. <laughs> And then when I read, uh, as I said, the, uh, the, I should quote the article, it's Prevalence of Hearing Loss in Teachers of Singing and Voice Students by uh, Isaac McBroom, Ingwen, I think is how they say that name, and Halstead. And uh, I read it and I was like, yes, yes, it's true. Here it is. They've, you know, uh, voice teachers are in a noise environment. And anyway, it just set a fire underneath me. And so um, that was my whole last year you know Lori, do you also you know certainly you must deal with some clients when they're coming in you know talking about um you know fatigue and and whatever they almost some of them must work in noisy environments too probably i mean that has to be a thing that that um, yes many of them uh well as you know because i work primarily with with singers uh and and so singers work a lot of different jobs and a lot of different places sometimes to, to put their living together. And, uh, uh, and sometimes there's also a lot of, uh, whining and dining and, and parties and fundraisers. And, and so then in, in between forming, they're expected to go and, uh, you know, schmooze with folks and the music's playing in the background and also have a, um, Currently, I'm working with a fitness instructor that, uh, you know, she, a part of her job is she, she's expected to go uh, when she's done teaching and and mingle with these people and, and recruit business for the, you know, mm. for the establishment. And, and there's very loud music playing in the background. And it's, it, and in between uh, sets, I mean, it's just endless. So I always say the world is such a noisy place. No matter where you are, yeah. it, it doesn't matter where you are. Didn't uh, I'm thinking of? Didn't uh, Ian do some research with some students uh, last year at some point where they went to local restaurants and they were measuring noise levels in these restaurants around the the conservatory where students were spending a lot of time. I remember him posting something online about that and uh, and. The, the measurements were, were in restaurants were equal to standing just a few feet away to a train going by. <laughs> like, I can't remember if that was him or actually part of that thing that the folks at Mass General are doing. Because there's a thing with the folks at Mass General that they've been okay. doing to work on sort of a different kind of dosimeter, I think. And I, okay. I, I don't remember. 
I also want to add that my colleague Pasquale Botalico does that also. And um, he actually did put an interesting spin on it. Like um, he put an economic spin on it. So if a place is too loud, people spend less money or it was something like that. I shouldn't even quote it because I got to go back and read it. But it was, I thought, well, now that's clever. <laughs> Restaurants might want to know what keeps people spending more money. Um, so I thought that you was know, kind of- one of the things I think about too, and this is, I'm just putting this out there as a question. I don't know the answer to it. It's, it's something I worth exploring and finding out if there's some, some information out there, but you know, I think, uh, how long does that diminished hearing stay with you? So, so looking out into the, the next day or two of your schedule, you know, if you have a, a really loud event in the evening with music and and lots of talking uh, for a few hours and then you pay for it the next day, your hearing's going to be diminished. You may have a little ringing and tinnitus and uh, that phenomenon. And then how does that stay with you? And then what does that do to the way you use your voice the next day? Yeah, I, sure. You know, it, absolutely. It, it, well, it's and you know, and, and you know what I've thought about the, too with the, with with that, and sort of in response to that, is uh, it does then age does you know sort of like when we work out as we get older, it takes us longer to recover. Yeah. You know, and so as we age, yeah. does it take I our hearing longer to recover? They, yeah. Yeah, and, and I honestly think that's why the answer is not set, because right. people are so unique, they age differently, it's hard to really say. I mean, all this hearing research is tough, right? Because uh, aging does, is like, well, it's like our eyesight. Aging plays a factor. Um, these things uh, diminish, Uh and sometimes they diminish quickly in people and sometimes they don't. And there's no way to really know. So that's why I think it's important to just be aware and know what symptoms of exposure are and then give yourself some recovery time. Um, and, you know, the other thing I want to say about what I find so fascinating about hearing research is that we talk about these higher frequencies. And as teachers of voice in particular, so much of uh our our speech and the comprehension of speech relies on those upper frequencies being there. So you're certainly your fricatives, um, all of that noise sound is very high frequency. Um, and, you know, we know, uh, all of us know because we're sort of enveloped in it, but as um, our hearing diminishes in those upper frequencies, some of our vowel timbres are going to be changed. And you can easily see that on Vista by adding a filter and filtering out those sounds. We know that they all become duller. Well, and particularly, and I'm just going to reiterate this point in regards to the second thing you said, if you're teaching contemporary voices, you need to really know where you're here. Because... Look, I, I, I think that you run the risk of misinterpreting what you're hearing. 
And, and that's really the dangerous part about it because you might ask your student to then subsequently try to make a noise for your own ears to hear a thing that they're already really doing that you're just not aware of. And, and, and so it's just, it's a good lesson for all of us to just be cognizant of what's yeah. going on with our hearing. Now, on that point, I, I think, Yvonne, I've heard, seen you talk about a couple of times uh, some earplugs that you, you wear to teach now, some specialty ones. Tell us about those. Yeah, I, I actually got some hearing um, hearing protection with uh, filters in it, and you can get various different filters. I mean, no, you know, the vocal fam can't see them, but I have these little uh, sort of hearing protection, and it has this removable filter. This removable filter has is nine decibels, so it it bas- basically lowers all sound equally that's going into that ear by nine decibels. Now that's all I needed in my studio. However, if you're a musician in an amplified environment, then you might need a filter that lowers decibels more. Okay. So since I also, in addition to in my real life job, sing opera and in my non real life Clark Kent job, sing contemporary music. Um, I just, anybody who is, who is singing a lot of amplified music, I obviously want to encourage you to one, use in-ear monitors to two, keep your master volume of your in-ear vault monitors down to a minimal level and, and honestly mix out the instruments that you really don't need. Um, and I would also say, if you're going to do it long-term, it, is, it, it needs to be an investment you make to go ahead and get your own custom ears. They're not that egregiously expensive of a career expense if it's something you're going to be doing all the time. Uh, and, right. and any audiologist can fit you for them, um, pretty much. I mean, most most audiologists do. Um, but but I just really want to recommend you do have to be fitted for the for the for the mold, um, uh, and then you can choose to get whichever brand and pay however much money you'd like to pay. They do like all things with um, speakers microphones preamps etc cetera, etc. Cetera. The price range can be. Uh, quite uh far ranging um right there's a there's a huge range of cost because you can sur- you can also get hearing protection as you said nick but at a lower cost the one that's not fitted or generally cheaper foamy ones mm-hmm. you can you do maybe that want to teach well those. i think those um i've seen those eargasm ones have come through my feed multiple times and i yeah. think they're only 40 or 50 bucks Right. Uh, yeah. They're really and not terrible. I just wanted to say, Sarah, you can uh, use the foam, but oh. remember that they don't they don't diminish all sound equally. So those little foamy ones typically knock out all the high oh, yeah. frequency, but not all of it equally. That so you it will sound sound will be muddy to you. Whereas with these with these filters, everything is reduced equally. So nothing sounds muddy. It sounds clear. It's just at a lower decibel. Yeah, that's right. Definitely I'm one gonna, of the parts. <laughs> I'll wrench in here and just point out that we're talking when we're talking about plugging and and using these filters. We're just talking about conduct. We're not talking about our our bone. I'm sorry. We're talking about our our hearing through the canal and not through the bone, and exactly. and so that we can't do anything about that. You know. Oh. So you're really only adjusting. Uh, that's it. true. And I know that's that's neither here nor there, but. 
an interesting point. Yes, but this is no, why we is- have a, this is why we have a professional with us. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Well, an interesting uh, thing, I don't know as much about all of this, but an interesting with this is, is this isn't exactly totally new territory. So my dad's a pilot and a huge thing with pilots is there's a whole generation of pilots that, including my dad, who qualify actually for disability due to the fact that they experience tearing loss because, you know, they're in these planes and for so long they didn't think about the effects that being exposed to that much loud noise constantly and having to talk, just hearing it. You talk about it through the bones. I mean, a plane, like there definitely is that amount of noise. And so that's something that at least in the flight industry, I know there have already been, they've already been down this path of recognizing it, taking steps to prevent it for future pilots. This, there are things in place now to keep them from experiencing that. And they're having to go back and deal with all of these pilots that have had hearing loss as a result of it. So I would be interested to see kind of what that looked like for them. And if, if that's a path that like we in the music industry will mirror at all. I think it's starting to happen. There's certainly been mm-hmm. tests done on uh, orchestra members uh, internationally um, and how much sound they are exposed to. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, it's 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 definitely a factor. Um, I, I, I honestly just would like to see our schools of music be part of a hearing conservation program yeah. as default as opposed to saying, do you think we need to be part of this? Well... You know, uh, that's I the mean, thing. There's no shame. It's recognized. Yeah. Like, this well, is a thing. Okay. So I think there's a there's a very complex issue there, though. But I mean, um, and yes, you're right. Your 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 point, Yvonne, is totally right. But NASM has gone a long way to make hearing health needed to be part of our environment or our culture. But at the same time, the National Association of Schools of Music can't demand that a university sound treat their rooms, which might cost upwards of a quarter of a million or a million or two million or whatever. And so they can advocate for it. And and Mm -hmm. I have actually, with our current administration, already said that I believe that every single rehearsal space that we have on our campus is not safe for hearing or voice health. And um, but all I can do is advocate for the change to be a necessity. But there's also the double edged, even another edge of the sword that right now, many of us in in music departments that are not large at major institutions are running the risk of the entire department being cut. And so we're not really in a fiscal place to sort of be making demands upon an administration um, yeah. when we're, we're, you know, so anyway, there, it's a very complex issue, but I think it's all the more reason for those of us in the trenches doing the teaching, doing the singing, doing the performing to be aware for our students that we need to be considering. Because I remember, um, a few years ago and I am nobody's baritone. I am the least thing from a baritone in the history of mankind, but, um, I'm probably closer to a mezzo anyway. Um, but I sang a couple of the baritone solos of Carmina Burana yes. with the Wind Symphony. They were doing the Wind Symphony arrangement of Carmina Burana, and was uh, Sarah was there. I was. <laughs> um, but I remember doing the rehearsal in the band hall and thinking, mm-hmm. "This is not a safe place to sing. 
this or here. And then I kept thinking for the students who are being exposed to that noise on a, on a daily basis. Um, and all I could do was just go Vafna. And that was basically <laughs> <laughs> right, Sarah. There was a lot of Vafna and me throwing my singers I mean, format essentially- at people. So much. To be honest, that's one of the few times I think I've ever been in a situation where you were singing where like there were times when I just didn't hear you. Right. <laughs> Which was saying a lot. <laughs> it was, well, there was a lot happening. There was a lot happening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of that. And I think what I mean, too, is so at our university, students can get a hearing test whenever they wish, which is really great. Faculty, however, um, have to go through the insurance company and that sort of thing or pay out of pocket. So I paid out of pocket for my hearing test um, and then got fitted for hearing protection. But I think when, you know, what I when I mean hearing conservation, I, I think I'd like faculty members as well to have that ability to go and get their hearing checked mm-hmm. um, at minimal cost and, um, and and be assessed for either maybe uh, some kind of hearing aids if they if they determine that they might need that or hearing protection or something like that. But um, I just sort of want it to be. And and uh, by the way, Nick, I, I support you. I agree. I, I think NASM has done some wonderful work and yeah. bringing that. And I want to say also, too, that um, the gentleman's name is Chazen, if I'm not mistaken, at the University of North Texas. And, and he's one of the reasons why we have that in place. Sure. Um, is it Chazen or um, let me, I want to make sure I get his name right. Oh, I'm so sorry. I wasn't prepared okay. to talk it's okay. about it's that. The, no, no, no. The vocal it's fam forgives you. Please, vocal fan, forgive me because he's done some amazing work in um, making sure that these organizations that oversee our schools of music have made it uh, something they promote hearing health, voice health, these sorts of things. And um, so his work is super, super important. Um, I will try and at least maybe post it um, after, well, after this gets posted. Vocal um, fam, come to Nats and Knox. Come yeah. see Lori and Yvonne on Monday morning at early, just like you're going to come see Sarah and I early on Sunday morning. Oh, We're yes. all going to be up early. early. Um, and, oh, uh, early. and so, so come and Either join Sunday us. Sunday night too. Uh, that's right. Good. Tell us about that. Um, so Carl, if you, a uh, voice professor from University of North Carolina, Greensboro. She and I will be uh, presenting on, we have an evening slot at 5 p.m. Uh, on Sunday, uh, MTD and the singer. So ah. Carla Lefevre, Laura yes. Lori Sonnenberg, Sunday at 5 at Nats and Knox on MTD, something that Fantastic. I'm very familiar with and looking forward to hearing what they have to say mm-hmm. on that. Um, and uh, it's just going to be a party. Uh, and it's going to be... Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm just I'm trying to take naps now, just thinking ahead. But it's going to be great. Oh, and uh, come join us. I think the early bird deadline for Nats and Knox is April 1st 
Uh, so Vocal Fam, if you've not gone, gone ahead and registered, I think the early bird deadline is April 1. Also, while you're registering for things in April, you should go and register for the Acoustic Vocal Pedagogy Workshop at the New England Conservatory, where Yvonne and I will be up there hey. learning learning from our wonderful faculty colleagues ian and chadley and ken and josh and bodo and kayla and also talking some at you um uh, i guess um uh, you guess well they really shouldn't give me a microphone they should just <laughs> anyway uh, uh, <laughs> But um, no, we'll have so register for that. Register for Nats and Knox. And before we go, really quickly, we have to ask them. I'm, right? I'm. Well, Lori's okay. already had her chance to sort of share her That's pop true. culture That's interest true. with the vocal fan. But Yvonne, I need to. I, I have a sort of two part question. Do you oh. have any pop culture interests you'd like to share from the vocal fam? And the second part, what has been any favorite pop culture in, interest that we have shared with you that you've actually enjoyed? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> well, that first one is, I mean, that second question is easy. That would be the Marvel Universe. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so my parents are huge fans like you guys. I mean, they know all the details, all the movies. They've seen them all, and they watch them over and over and over and over again. And okay. so because of you guys, I, 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 when I visit them, I'm like, okay, guys, I know you want to see all the movies, but I just want your top three, and then we'll watch the top three. <laughs> and so that's so – I. So that's wait. Yeah. So, so what did they? What did they make you watch? Three. I'm really curious. Like, uh, what did we watch? We watched. Oh, Nick! I didn't come prepared for this. Oh, the pressure. Ah, uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, let's see. Well, be well because of Sarah, I had to see Captain Marvel. Hello. Oh, I mean, I love what, did, what did Sarah Marvel. call her? She's like a Kicky cool fighty, fighty girl, Kick butt fighty, fighty lady. lady. Yeah. Lady, my, my lady. So, uh, because, and I think that's my all-time favorite. Ah, fantastic! And Yay. my and and my daughters. So awesome! I loved that movie. Mm. Um, but yeah, in terms of well, Volca Fry, of course, is one of my favorite <laughs> pop things. Um, totally devoted. And um, but you know, I watch Dancing with the Stars and American Ninja I Warrior. Dancing with the Stars. Oh. Those two shows I can't get enough of. Like I, I, I hate when Ninja Warrior is not on TV because I'm like, well, come on, like make when some. When is it not on TV? Well, I, well, you would think, but they go on all the time. We season. went through a big American Ninja Warrior kick for a few summers, and then last summer it just it. never really happened for us. I don't remember why. Um, I don't remember if it was just vacations were poorly timed or, or, or what it was, but uh, we never really got into it last season. But my son had really loved it, and, and my daughter both. Um, uh, I love Dancing with the Stars. Like, I think as teachers, we can all just appreciate that people come in doing something, and then they improve over time, and we get to see that improvement. And it's, I don't know, I find that really um, really nice. I, I enjoy seeing that process Fantastic. happen. Fantastic. So. Yeah. All so right. those are my big. All right. This has been wonderful. Two of my favorite humans yes. on the planet and Sarah. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> oh. Um, Sarah, what'd you have for breakfast? I had a bagel. A bagel? Not a muffin. It's Saturday. Muffin. Why didn't you have a muffin? Because <laughs> because I'm sick and I didn't, I didn't feel like cooking anything. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> You don't. So, uh, I can uh, use a toaster, though. You don't have any flu-like symptoms, right? 
Yeah. Well, I think I have a sinus infection, actually. It's, like, all right here. Okay, good. You know, like, the snot. Vocal the fam, head, listen. Vocal fam, wash your hands. Everybody wash <laughs> their right. hands. Wash your hands. <laughs> wash your hands, please. Granted, I feel like you should be doing that even when it's not flu season. Like, the fact that people are like, oh, everyone should... Are y'all not washing your hands normally? 35% of males in America don't wash their hands after using the bathroom. So before you shake anybody's hand, consider that statistic. That's like, that's horrifying. I'm I'm very like anal about washing my hands. So when I hear that sort of thing, I'm like, what, what do you normally do? (laughs) Stay away and not shake people's. And I have to shake people's hands all the time for the admissions job. And so I'm like, are you one of them? Are you one of the not hand washers? This is terrifying. <laughs> Sorry, All that's right. one of my things. I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't know that was a thing for me until recently. Well, Sarah, I have an alternative for you. Okay. Fist, so I, I, I work with a, <laughs> I have a children's choir fist pump. Just fist but it's, fist bump. But it's a joke. Like this thing, fist like I'm, I'm the admissions person, and these are like very fancy businessy people who are like, hello. I am the CFO at Mercedes Benz, and I'm like, "Hi, <laughs> let me let me try to convince your kid to go to school here." Not only does Sarah not want to shake your hand, apparently she's not impressed. <laughs> no, I mean I've met some people that probably have very, like they're very fancy jobs, but I don't know. That's fabulous. My job. I mean, that's that's like impressed. a Sarah moment that I can totally relate to. So part <laughs> of my passion for vocal fry is that. Sarah says exactly what I'm thinking at oh, all good. times. <laughs> good, because I'm saying what I'm thinking. Just it comes in and just. <laughs> Sarah, what That's we good. should do is so. So basically, what what Yvonne just said is that she's you, and Heidi <laughs> Heidi Moss said that she's me. So we should do a secret <laughs> vocal fry where Heidi is actually me and Yvonne is you, and we won't even be on the episode. We can go on okay. vacation. We're, but yeah, when we take a break, we'll just put y'all on. Y'all got something for us. <laughs> they would be that very would entertaining. Be awesome. It would. It would. They would be very uh, entertaining. Yeah. Oh, I love me some Heidi Moss. Anyway, you all are both fantastic. Lori, thank you. Yeah. Yvonne, thank you. Uh, uh-huh. This episode will go up today. So um, once you. we get our session recorded with Josh today, Picard. we got to cover Picard yeah. episode six, where plot finally happened. So much plot yes. finally so happened. Yes, so Sarah and I will I be back. Hear all about it. Sarah and I will be back with you, vocal fam, momentarily. We'll talk to you in a, in, in a bit. It. Okay. It's Picard, PhD. Now you'll learn something real nerdy on our show as we go to Dr. Glasner's lab. In section 31, da 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 Hello, are we doing no video? No, we got yeah, video. We got video of you. Oh, okay. Can you not see us? <laughs> I cannot, but it's fine. Huh, well we got you. Fantastic. In your like brown Star Trek jacket. Vaguely, vaguely. It may not even be brown. I was going to say, I don't actually think it's brown, but that's okay. I'm not going to discriminate against colorblind people. It's okay. Mostly let it go. 
It's not quite brown, but that's okay. It's close. It's a brownish color. Well, it looks like a jacket Rios would wear. I'll that's take that. Fun. I'll buy that mostly because Rios's jacket is a similar color. I honestly it's also only not remember brown. him without clothes, so there's that. Oh, whoa. <laughs> so you're saying they cast an actor because of what he looked like without a shirt on. <laughs> I know that's never happened before. Not in opera. Oh. (laughs) See what I did there? Yeah. Anyway, what were we talking about? Uh, Picard. Picard. Hello, Josh. Welcome back. Hey. Oh, and because we didn't even do last week, so we have like two episodes. Right. Well, um, you know, whatever. The episode before... Uh, things happen. I would like to say in the episode before, I strongly considered messaging y'all and being like, who called it that blonde chick is you did. totally working? I mean, I think she's being manipulated by them, but still. Haha. She is not honest. Bye. Well, how about them like saying, oh, Maddox this, Maddox this, and then, and then we meet him, and then he's dead in the same episode. In 30 Jamie seconds. Thinks- Okay, so Jamie has a very interesting theory that I was like, oh, that's smart. If you had the ability to make an android that could go undetected as a human, but you knew that this would make you hunted down by people, what would you do? You would make an undetectable android either to die for you, go take your place, or that could go on living and like then when you're killed, inevitably, has the answers. Because I feel like the moment that they brought back in the little recap of last week's episode at the beginning of this week's episode with what's his face, the Romulan boy who's kind of icky. Narek. Um, mm-hmm. Where he's like, all of them? Well, Narek or maybe Ryan. Anyway. Or maybe like, whatever he said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I'm trying to be French, but I'm wrong. Yeah, Romulan. it was some whatever. sort of like weird Baylor R, but not really. Yeah, right. but all that being said, he, he made that point of saying, like, yeah, we want to destroy all of them, which to me implies that there's more even than just Soji and Dodge somewhere. Yeah. Which makes sense as to why they're trying to find the home world. Yeah. So I'm yeah. starting to get this sense, and this is going into this the, the episode from this week, but I am getting the sense that, like, do you remember? I don't know, like, a number of weeks ago... I was like, I bet that that card game that Data and Picard were playing, that like all the queens in in the one hand would yeah. like mean something. And it was like the first and, week. Yeah, that, that was yeah. like the first episode. And I thought I was like, it's either going to be Q or the Borg Queen. Well, they kind of just showed a way for like them to reverse what Voyager did. Oh, see, I haven't seen Voyager, so I don't know what they did, but I bet it's. Can something. we tell? Can we tell her? Because I think it's important. Yes, go ahead. I'm also mad. So they, so Voyager, found this nexus, um, that like connected all the trans warp hubs, um, okay. for the Borg. So that's how the Borg like kind of jumped between places like really quickly. Yeah, we saw um, that today. Okay. And so, um, the very last episode, um. Basically, in order to get home, uh, Janeway makes a deal, essentially, to um, destroy the whole Borg Unimatrix. Um, 
and also take her like ship home. Um, all the, the point being that the, the thing they still haven't quite explained right now is how the Borg exist 20 mm-hmm. years after that. Yeah. Um, despite the Borg having been destroyed. Yeah. And so when they go into this like board, the Borg Queen's chamber in this mm-hmm. new episode um, and they show some sort of gateway that allows the Queen to escape. Yeah, that would explain why it still exists. And, and this one's just been abandoned. Exactly. Or potentially like how the Queen may have escaped. Because um, we also Back know then, from Star yeah. Trek canon that the that there are multiple Queens or like multiple like bodies that can become the queen or something like that so i'm just saying i think that i think that it's not going to be q i think that the one of the big reveals at some point this season um i'll go out on limb i think it's going to be about the board queen that would be cool and i think i think picard's going to have all kinds of like um flashbacks I think you actually. Oh, he already is. I think you're actually going about proving your other argument. Oh, an origin story. So, what did Hugh say to Picard? That it's just all there. Like you just know it without even no. He I mean, he did said say that, who when he was talking about that he never thought that there would be reclamation on that scale. Mm. And Picard and and Hugh says, and and then Picard says, let alone by Romulans. Oh, and Hugh says, yes, our Romulan queen. Oh, you know, I didn't even really think about that, but that's an interesting point. Yeah, I, I, it's definitely all going to. It was it a line that was very much just thrown away. But w- not in light of your point about the five queens. Yeah. Or the Borg queen. Or the fact that the Romulans are now the Borg's, the XB's queen. Queen. Yeah, because they said, you know, they're still really. Oh, what's the word? In a sense, they're still slaves. Yeah. Just well, two and you. They're like the. Wait. They've created them as almost the lowest of the low of the low. Yeah, yeah. just their their status in society. Is right, is they're not nothing. they're not human. They're not synth. They're not Borg. They're yeah XBs. Something in between. Yeah. So, are we happy that things are finally starting to happen? Yes. I thought I felt like they really started to kick in plot wise last week. Yep. I agree. Some people some people were still pretty critical of last week's episode on the internet, but in in case you're wondering, people on the internet can be rather critical about certain things. Wait, what? Uh, I what this news to me. What Um, is the internet? But but I felt like um coming right out and killing Icheb in the very first scene. Oh. Which, by the way, is a different actor, in case yes. you... Yeah, and, we looked that and up. And that one is a different actor because the particular actor who played Icheb came out in defense of Kevin Spacey after Anthony Rapp's oh statement. My. So that actor is no longer part of the Star Trek universe. Wow. 
Anyway, so they had no choice but to recast Echeb. Oh my word, there's like a pun there, isn't there? Probably. Something about Echeb and Spacey and space. Something there. <laughs> and it probably rhymes like a rap. <laughs> I anyway. I don't know. Um anyway, but um yeah, I, I am a little still disheartened that the original actor was not cast for Bruce Maddox. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, okay, can we now unpack that since you brought it up from last week? It seemed as if one of the biggest mystery boxes of the season was going to be, where is Bruce Maddox? How can we find sure. Bruce Maddox? Yeah. Well, here we are, the episode before the midpoint, and we already found Bruce Maddox. We had him give Picard information that we already knew, and then they killed him. And I'm not I convinced they were dis- totally gone. I think they were disappointed that they couldn't get the, the original actor. Well, it's probably that, too. Um, or maybe kidding. he's not dead. I mean, Sarah, maybe yeah. he knows. But I then... Mean, there's, there's options. Okay, all right. So then, let's talk about this uh, in that scene. So, Allison Pill's character. Blonde chick. Yes, so she yeah. kills him. Uh, she annoys me. First of all... Why is the emergency medical hologram not reporting this to Captain Reeves? Uh, exactly, right? Hello. Yeah. I mean, I get that they're moving to like cool, bigger and better things, but like there are some things that are being seriously rushed. Well, uh, some of the dialogue like this week, I had some moments where I was like, this is so unrealistic. Like when Blonchick, whose name I just really can't I haven't figured out why I can't remember it. Smacking with um. Yeah. Yeah. And like while she's doing it, he's like, "How do you feel? Hollow and empty." Okay, like you would be saying, like this is something that is gonna fill me for this moment. But then nobody says it while it's happening. Like, yes, obviously we're all aware that like that sort of thing is where you're trying to fill this hole, but it doesn't really fill the place. But nobody says it (laughs) while it's happening. It was like it was written by a 14 year old. Yeah, and and then he keeps making out with her. Like, oh yeah, that's a turn on. I'm sorry, I just thought that really bothered me. I was just like. And, well, and as and as we're talking about the um the the relationships, how about the the most rushed relationship of all of them? Um, and Soji and um Nara. Oh. Yeah, when he's like, "Let me take you to the meditation room," and I was like, "Oh gosh." Well, but don't leave the other scene first. Rios, there's no scar. Where's his scar <laughs> on his shoulder? We made such a big deal. Big deal, and then just nothing. And now his oh, shoulder is fine. I didn't realize the that. assumption is that you're not looking at his shoulder. If his They're shirt making is off, a lot of assumptions that we're not looking at a lot of off, stuff. Then why are you looking at his shoulder? I guess See, I wasn't you're... looking at his shoulder. Sorry, guys. Exactly. It's okay. I wasn't either. Well, <laughs> honestly, Allison uh, Pill's character was. <laughs> she was looking at a lot of Dr. stuff. Dr. Girardi was looking at his shoulder. Um. Oh, Among so other things. So <laughs> other relationships that are super... Y'all, that, like, the sister to Narek, like, she is the creepiest, most incestuous character I feel like okay, I have ever thank watched. thank you so much for saying that, because I'm getting, like, a serious, like, Jamie like Lannister, Cersei vibe. vibe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes. Every week I'm like, uh, why is nobody talking about this? Because this is weird. Are they really? And I don't siblings? even know if it's I don't even know if it's intentional. I don't either. Like, is it just the way she's playing the character? I guess. But it's there. No, it's it's there. It's there. Well, and like, I mean, are they, is there an explanation? Like, are they adopted siblings? So they're not really related. Does that make it okay? Or like, is it, are we just going with this? Like, this is just some Romulan weirdness. It's it's one of the secrets. (laughs) Lots of secrets. Speaking of secrets, did anybody notice like of, of all these things, that keep being said. I mean, obviously, Allison Pill's character was shown something by the Commodore, whatever, you something. know, and and that made her understand that these synths were going to destroy the world because obviously Keeper. she contributed something to creating Soji that allowed Maddox to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and but. Did anybody catch the line, and I can't remember if it was in episode five or if it was actually even previous and in episode four, and I'm, gosh, I meant to go back and have a chance to look, and I forget, but there was the reference to like the, there's an adjective I can't remember, but the something of eight, the, the it was oh. like the blank eight, like the, yeah. the, the, uh, like the, belligerent eight or something that wasn't what it was but but there and it was just it was sort of thrown over like the kind of reference that you'd put in if you meant to tell us who those people were um and yet we've not heard anything more about them um i i definitely think uh i'm ready for the uh fenris rangers cavalry to show up (laughs) in the season finale (laughs) With seven of nine and her Fenris Rangers, that'll be that'll be good. Um, <laughs> what sort of going backwards? I know we're jumping around a lot, but what did we think of okay. seven and nine blowing up the girl? Uh, it seemed in character. I mean, I don't know her character much, but it seemed in character from what I saw in this show. Does that make sense? Like, I don't have any backstory on her, but just from the episode, I was like, yeah, that seems right. But it might not jibe with like her previous. It's very on Star Trekky. Yes, yeah, I agree. Yeah. With well, so Jamie and I were talking about this that like the whole one of our things with Picard is that it's. I mean, of course, this is for me is just based on Star Trek Next Gen. Is that the whole series is not like your super just traditional Star Trek exploring the universe. But then I was like, well, when you think about it, it's it it's not Star Trek. It's just Picard. It's not this ship out exploring. This is. Yeah. Picard. This is different. It's in the Star Trek universe, but it's not necessarily Star Trek what you think of Star Trek. And that's something I think we've all talked about a lot, that this is very different from our usual utopian, off-to-explore, we're-so-elevated Star Trek. Okay, so in this, Narek takes Soji into the meditation chamber. (laughs) He's like, by the way... And then basically Romulan dream hacks her. And yeah. and she takes control of the dream. She see here. Here's one of the more interesting plot points that I'd like to mention mm-hmm. of the dream sequence. He's using it to find out the planet that this space yep. is on, which mm-hmm. clearly is not her father's lab because the they've already destroyed her father's lab, right? Because they say in the episode before. 
when Maddox is captured, he says, my, they destroyed my lab, and I need money. Unless this is a different lab. Like, I mean, it might be that he created them in one lab and then fled to Free Cloud to... And or are this, we going to see lab. a planet of, uh, like, a utopia where it's a whole planet of synths that Maddox created? Maybe. Or maybe it's, like, a homing thing. You know, that she's dreaming of almost like... A, it's almost like a homing beacon to this planet. Like, which would essentially be what you're saying. Maybe. Yeah, it does seem like they're kind of leading towards that. Did y'all think it was interesting, kind of the Pinocchio vibe, like that she sees right. herself on the table and she's wooden? I was, I liked that. I liked that. That was, that was yeah, that was I, a nice touch. I thought so. I enjoyed it. There yeah. Is, yeah, it does seem like they're going to be going and like finding some sort of like, um, like android kind of homeworld. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely more somewhere, obviously. It was it was also very interesting to me that in that scene she did not actually get to make out the face of her father. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Are they trying to leave a door open that she really had two dads? Either that or that there's some sort of like that Maddox wasn't actually the one who created them. I don't know. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure where that was going. Or just that she's never, I mean, you know, the mom is a fake mom program. Like maybe there's just no dad face programmed in. Like if this is all a part of her programming and her neural network and she wasn't meant to see that, like it just wasn't programmed in. That's my, I mean, that options. Or was it lore? I could, I could believe mm, that. Maybe, yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't. I think we're gonna see a Brent Spiner another return, not this season, but I, I don't think we're done with Brent Spiner quite yet. Uh, yeah, also, we really don't know what happens with Lore. Yeah. Right. Also, I mean, like, the guys on Star Trek TNC brought this up this week. Like, when, when uh, I, I did like Rafi's character better. I, I, in the scene where she's negotiating their diplomatic, you know, uh, yes. whatever. Yeah. It's the I first time I've sort of like bought the character. It was very political. And yet totally stoned. <laughs> well, yeah. that's the other thing, like, but that makes sense because, I mean, the, right. the way they're playing her as an addict, like, I feel that's very true to an addict. To be sober for day a few days and go and be like, no, I've turned over this new leaf. And then the first thing to fall back into that just over and over, like... That's so. That's such a realistic portrayal right. of addiction, and I, I I appreciate that. Except the perfect scene where they could have brought Michael Dorn in as Worf and had Picard call Worf for diplomatic credentials instead. Apparent. So I don't know where I read this. Maybe it's that Dorn is out captaining the Enterprise. Yes. Yes. Huh. We read the same source. That'd be cool. There's apparently a novelization, a Picard prequel novel, that Worf is now the captain of the USS Enterprise E. Yep. That'd be cool. Uh, Which is basically like the only way that Michael Dorn would come back and do this. Is if he's the captain? Yeah. <laughs> Just, I'm the captain now. How very George Takei of him. <laughs> well, you know that uh, Worf, I mean, not Worf, uh, Michael Dorn, he actually proposed a um, series to uh, Paramount or Viacom, or whomever. Paramount. Um, Paramount owns Paramount. Uh, and uh, it was, it was going to be Captain Worf. 
the series. Uh, a lot of prune it. juice. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, that was funny. Oh man, oh I can't say that. Um, yeah, mm. that. A, lot, a lot of prune um, juice and, and the character Elnor, who, by the way, Jamie and I, we we think that they just. He, he he's basically Elrond, and they just couldn't come up with a better name. So yeah, they're just like, we're gonna a, switch, we're gonna switch two letters. Ha ha. Space elf. Elnor. I um, mean, aren't I, all Vulcans and Romulans space elves? Oh, right. Now, well, now I felt they so are. Bad because I was sitting there going, uh, his character's so pointless. His character's so like, why did they bring him? His character's nope. so pointless. And he then has he, very he has two points. Two points, in fact. Ah. Oh. Uh, 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 uh. But like, I literally just finished saying that, and he transports onto the ship, and I'm like, ooh, yeah, okay. Well, so he's about to be dead. So I guess that won't matter anymore. The other I mean, scene. Not that he's dead. The but. other scene that I really loved this week. I thought the recept the the reunion with Hugh. Is the that first so time well I've almost believed that Picard was Picard. Yeah. I liked that a lot. Yeah. Like it actually was written right. Mm-hmm. I was like, yes, I that's exactly mean. how that 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 whole sequence with Picard. I felt like this week with Picard sort of, you know, getting back to confronting his own past of Lucutus. Mm-hmm. And then meeting Hugh and realizing that the decision that he had made to let Hugh go was the right one. Yeah. Like. Uh, and 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 to talk uh, to kind of the opposite as well kind of happened in this episode with um, I felt they were taught so they were talking about the Borg on the other ship. Yeah. Um, on Reyes's ship. And there was this moment, and I, I rewatched the episode this morning to to prep, and like, I there's this part where he said it's a good line, but it wasn't very Picard, um, yeah. where he was like, "No, the Borg don't something; they're malignant or something." They metastasize. They metastasize. And it was a great line, but he just played it like a really, really angry person, and and I get that that's kind of. They're they're having him explore what it means to be a survivor kind of thing, but like But very it, not Picard. It wasn't him. It was a it was a very weird scene. I agree. Jamie, yes. I, I, I thought that too, just having watched more and more Star Trek Next Gen, the more I watch this and I'm like, this is the very different Picard. This is you know, I mean, I know that his interactions with the Borg certainly have affected him, and yet this seems to be a completely different take on like how it affected him than how it was played in the show of course i've only seen his interactions with the borg once i know that there's some more interactions in my flight that are coming for me have you met hugh yet or not no i have not i you talked about wharf taking over we actually just like a day or so ago watched the episode where uh, everybody's minds get like their memories get suppressed, oh, yeah. and Worf initially takes over the Enterprise until they find the um, oh I can't remember what it's called on the ship, the manifest that says that Picard is the yeah. leader, and it was so interesting. And I was like, cool, that was that was good writing on their part because the way they were doing it, where like Worf starts to get annoyed because Picard, even though he didn't initially take charge, like. He naturally is just more of that kind of wise, experienced leader and started to naturally take that position. And Worf was getting like, you know, Worf 
ask very i feel like what a, how a klingon would respond but then they find the manifest and he's like oh i am sorry is that the one where data works with the other species to try to keep the enterprise from being destroyed no no no, no so. this is another one this is a different one where their minds get suppressed this is one where there's that extra commander yeah, the extra commander, like, he makes himself the number one. Right. And Data actually starts out as a bartender. He thinks he's a bartender until they find the manifest. Right. And Worf is like, oh, I'm the most decorated, obviously. Yeah. Um, I'm the captain, and I'm the and strongest. It's a it's an alien life form trying to manipulate them into destroying um, a rival. another a rival. Yeah, 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 that yeah, they're at war with. That's so, right. That's right. It was an interesting episode. That's it, right. it was. That's yeah. Right. Uh, I, go ahead. No, nah, and um, uh, I think going back to this episode, one of the one of the really striking part, uh, like cine- uh, the striking uh, cinema- cinema- cinematographic. Yeah. Cinem- yeah. Yeah, that. Um, one of the really interesting parts visually was um, hit Picard doing a search um, on his computer of all things like Borg yeah. and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, and there were some, if you go back, there's some really cool shots, mm-hmm. um, like pictures that he sees, like from past movies or episodes or whatnot. But man, the one that really like just sticks in my mind, it's probably going to stick in my mind for a while. Um, with this series is when you look behind the transparent screen and it's Locutus. Yeah. And he like touches his lined up with his face and he touches like where Where... that would have been on his face, where the um, Borg implants would have been on his face. Yes. I thought that was a very powerful moment actually. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Um, Okay. So it seems like, from here, it seems like what they just set up was that Rios and Gerardi and Rafi are going to somehow have to get Elnor off that cube and then okay, yes. and then get out of there. And obviously Picard and Soji just transported, it appears, to the planet where Riker and Troy are raising Finally. their family. So they're all going to try to reunite there. But at the same time, it seems like the, so the, I don't know, Zadvash, Zadvash, or whatever they are, is going after the home planet of the Synths, and not yeah. really after think. Soji. They don't sort of really seem to necessarily care about Soji. I mean, other than that, eventually she dies. As I say, eventually they want to kill her, but. She wouldn't be my priority at this point if I was them. You know, they've got what they need. And so I here's a question, I guess. What what what's the mystery that we're left with? Like like this whole sort of storytelling is like normally in TV, it's like we're trying to figure out like where are we going or who are we meeting or what do they do or whatever. And I almost feel like while we've started to have plot development finally, I'm kind of almost like wondering where we're going at this point. I mean, obviously, I know literally in the next episode where we're going, but like, so we have so we have Soji, right? Who's looking? Yeah, there's still to, some questions. She she now knows what she is, or or knows that she's not human. So human she has, knows that at we least. have an exploration kind of of self kind of thing happening. We have Picard, who's going to feel like he needs to protect her. 
Well, um, he doesn't know why she was created or what her connection is to Data, really. And and we have the people getting Eleanor off the um, board cube. And we also have Hugh, who looks like he's going to be in, interrogated. Yeah, tortured or something. That's true. Which um, also, side note, doesn't really, like, that part doesn't really jive with the whole, you know, Jean Vosh wanting to go and um, just destroy this potential yeah. synthome world. So... Honestly, I do think that that I keep saying this, but I think that we're gonna we're gonna end up towards some sort of Borg origin. I was gonna say, like, what if they they are worried, like, about, what if they want to like almost reassimilate him or something? Like, if there is that connection to the Borg in some way. Also, you've got to wonder, like, we haven't gotten explained, like, how is what who is the destroyer? What does it mean to be the yeah. destroyer? You know, you have that whole thing of like, why is it that we are trying to destroy all these synths? What, what is the big fear of the Jad Vash? And is it something that Picard might even come to share? But then they find out there's more to it. Like, I don't know. I, there's a lot of backstory there we need. Yeah. Agreed. That's- and we're obviously going to get some more. We have five more episodes. Um mm. But uh, we'll we'll see. Uh, I think I think the general internet seems to be more happy with these past two weeks than they were with the first four there was weeks. Action! Well, things actually happened. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't be supplo- I wouldn't be surprised if it slows back down a little bit because we've made so much progress. Yeah. Like yeah. if the next episode feels a little more back to kind of stalled expositiony type stuff. Possibly. But uh, vocal fam, no, we're moving. Vocal fam, Michael Shabon is out as showrunner for season two. Um, I don't think they've named an official showrunner for season two yet. I think it will probably end up being Akiva Goldsman, but but uh, we shall uh, wait and see. I also wouldn't be shocked if Kurtzman just takes the reins himself. Yeah. Uh, for a season. Um. So doesn't uh, that kind of start worrying you? Yes. That like like. Because this is exactly what happened with Discovery. Right. Uh, except, well, Discovery, it happened after the second episode. Um, so I don't know. There's something that it's totally, <laughs> totally maybe beyond the scope. But um, there, it, it, it must be something with the work culture. You'd think. Yes. Because it keeps happening now, like between multiple series well and not only that but it's like um marvel does a really great job usually of keeping everything in house Mm -hmm. until the scott derrickson departure from dr strange um and uh and then that's become a fiasco um I, i don't get the sense that Star Trek, I think they like to paint a really pretty picture, and I think that once they're on set, it's a really pretty picture. I'm not so sure how pretty the development is. Yeah, um, between the writers and the EPs. Because um, who was the person who was originally with Discovery on uh, writing it? Um, uh, you mean at the Fullerton, Brian Fullerton, at the very get go? Yeah. Um, and that's actually how this whole like thing. This whole like Star Trek franchise, like reinvigorated franchise thing, kind of started, right? Because um, he was like, "Oh, I want this, and I want a diplomacy series, and I want a politics series, and that da 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 da." And um, 
and then he was gone after two episodes because of it seemed apparently personal tensions. And so we got Avada Kedavra. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's an inside joke. Uh, we got we got basically a warlord Terran running a Star Trek ship. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> watch watch Discovery, Vocal Fam. It'll make. Well, so I'm gonna watch that. So so many jokes that uh, I don't get. It'll, uh, well, let's just say that the guy who played Lucius Malfoy is the captain of the United USS Discovery for quite a while. Really? In fact. Fantastic. Am <laughs> I looking forward to that? Anyway. Uh, but, all right, Josh, give us your voice deep dive for today because it's something that I'm excited about because I read it this morning. So go ahead. Awesome. Um, yeah, I thought that it needed a little bit of a... Unpack. Yeah, just a little bit of a dig. So it's a lot. I read it this morning too, a, and I was it's like, "It's not Oof. a dig. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, a, well, maybe an excavation, excavation." Yeah, I think yeah. I. Um. So 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 y'all, what I'm what I'm looking at this week is um, I was reading through the uh, journalist the journal scene that came out a couple days ago, mm-hmm. and something that popped out. Um, when I was looking through that, uh, there was a bunch of good stuff, but one thing that popped out was uh, Dr. Tietz's column uh his voice research and technology column so uh the title of this uh y'all is relations between time and frequency and signal analysis now um a a lot of us use spectrograms and uh what i've been kind of thinking over for a, a number of years is that um once i started digging into what was under the hood of the of spectrograms it kind of made more sense as to kind of the um, the limitations of the technology or some of the things like the, the, the why of why some types of analysis don't quite work. Um, so so one of the things he's talking about here is actually um, the, well, the relationship between time and frequency, essentially saying that um, the because of the uncertainty principle, um, we can't have re- we, we can only have really accurate um, frequency measurements or we can have really accurate time measurements. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, but we can't have both of them um, the, the, uh, we can't be perfectly certain of both of them at the same time. So how this relates to spectrograms is that when we pull something out of the time domain, so when we take a waveform um, and we try and figure out how like uh, the, the contents, the frequency content of, that um, sound, um, we actually take little segments and perform what's called a fast Fourier transform. We take those little segments and that's called windowing. And then we actually overlap windows in order to be more accurate. Within those windows then, the way we increase our frequency, the frequency, what's called the frequency resolution, is we actually add a bunch of silence to within that window and that allows us to become really um accurate with our frequency um analysis and so what he's talking what dr teats is talking about in this article is um that idea that we can either be really certain about the frequency or we can be really certain about the um time uh how for example how many pulses are in a cycle or how many pulses are in a um a spectrogram Mm. Um, and I think it's interesting, uh, to be thinking about these things as we look at these spectrograms, because we're not actually looking at what is 
really happening, we're looking at a representation um, and estimate of what's happening. Yeah. Um, so it, it's one of the reasons why I don't, I personally don't actually um, talk so much about interactions between harmonics and frequent and, and formants anymore um, in, in either my research or in, in my pedagogy classes. I actually try and talk about things a bit more broadly um, because it's very difficult to be very certain about the uh, where those harmonics will line up with with formants, for example. And that's cool. Um, Josh has been using the term in a lot of his research called that he he likes the 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 usage of spectral moments. Um, uh, can you tell us, tell the vocal fam what a spectral moment is? So, so actually I was talking to, uh, I was talking to uh, my girlfriend the other, uh, actually yesterday, I guess I was mm -hmm. like, I, is this the time when I should be bringing up spectral moments? And, and then I, came, then I, then I came across this article again. Um, well, we can, we can talk about spectral moments next week. If you, if it, you... it might, it might be something that's worth, a, a okay. All right. All right. That all right. Might take a whole, is that a yeah, whole other yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's do spectral so moments next week. Um, next but uh, the whole, if I, I can, what I can do is I can summarize what they do as opposed to looking at kind of a micro analysis. Sure. So when we take, um, when we take a spectrogram and we look at a specific point in time, we can look at, um, uh, a spectrum. Right. Of, uh, we can look at that that segment as a spectrum. Um, we can also average a bunch of spectra together and get a long-term average spectrum. Right. Um, what spectral moments do is they take that spectrum and they characterize the shape. They characterize the picture that you see on the screen um, using uh, moments, um, which are, it, it's a, way of describing certain statistical measures. Um, but essentially, instead of saying, okay, so I see, you know, H1, or I see the first um, harmonic uh, tracking with the first formant uh, or mm -hmm. the first uh, resonance, um, you would say, oh, I see a larger proportion of the sound at the lower end of the spectrum compared to the higher end of the spectrum or vice okay. versa. Um, and so you're describing the shape rather than a very um, specific. specific point in the spectrum. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So Which I like personally... Like to be more broad in it. Exactly. And so personally, I like... I think it's elegant because um, we don't necessarily... While we can like kind of point to, oh, this is what it sounds like when someone is belting, or this is what mm -hmm. it sounds like when someone is um, navigating Passaggio in a way that is... Um, appropriate for a Western classical tradition um, mm -hmm. for male or female singing. Um, I think that these, I think that spectral moments and looking at the broad picture can allow us to characterize these sounds in ways that are more um, germane to our. He frozen. I think. All well, right. vocal fam. We'll tell you more next week about that. Yep. Because we just lost Dr. Glasner. It's a literal cliffhanger. And that's a, quite a cliffhanger to leave you on, but we look forward to uh, that one next week. Uh, okay. Well, that's basically right. it for wow, today. <laughs> um, we look forward to talking more with Dr. Glasner next, next week. Uh, 
And there you go. That just seems so just, I don't know. That's my life just in like a lump right now. Just. (laughs) All right. All right, Vocal Fam. We'll talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. Bye.